0: hey guys tyler here and this is the foam frat podcast i want to talk about acid base interpretation electrical neutrality anion gap acidosis and when to give sodium bicarb but before we get started october 30th is fast approaching ems world expo in nashville tennessee the teaching co-op is doing the first ever teaching course for ems Ashley Liebig, Ginger Locke, Salim Razai, myself, and others in the FOMED education world are going to be there uh, giving tips and tricks and advice on the uh, most efficient way of teaching medicine in the most efficient and creative way, I should say. And looking at some of the content it is going to be fantastic. Not something you want to miss, and it's not going to be recorded. We're not going to be putting out any of these on podcasts. So if you want to get all of the goodness, uh, you have to actually be there. I'll put a link to the conference in the show notes. Last time I checked, there were five seats available. So do not miss out on this. Uh, Go ahead and sign up as soon as possible. All right, now about a month and a half ago, I put out a blog on the Stewart approach to acid base, also known as the quantitative approach. And the reason that I've just been so interested in this lately is because of the question on when to give sodium bicarbonate. And I have to say that the majority of EMS predicates their decision on giving bicarb on the basis of, well, it's not going to do any more harm. So I felt like I could give them some sodium bicarb. You know, it's, it's going to make them more uh, alkaline. How could that possibly be bad? Or it's a cardiac arrest. Uh, I can't get them back. Might as well just throw some sodium bicarb at them. The Stewart approach to acid base says that pH is a dependent variable. And it depends on three things. And those three things are CO2, albumin, and your strong ion difference. And that's the difference between your sodium and your chloride. Now, the best way to understand this is to first go listen to the MCRIT podcast on acid-base interpretation because it is a four, maybe five-part series on exactly the steps you need to take to figure out where that acid is coming from. Where is that acidosis occurring? And there is a multi-step approach utilizing uh, the base deficit or base excess, a strong ion difference, and your strong ion gap. And you really get down to the nitty-gritty of exactly where that acid is coming from and how much acid is unaccounted for. Now, I'm not going to get into that in this podcast. We're going to look at two types of metabolic acidosis. We're going to look at the non-anion gap metabolic acidosis, so the NAGMA, and the elevated anion gap acidosis. The first concept that I want to talk about is electrical neutrality. I think of this like a football team. There has to be an even number of players on offense and defense. So think of your offense like your cations and your defense like your anions. Uh, You can't have one extra player on the other team. They have to be completely equal at all times. If one guy comes in, then another guy has to go out. Now, if you were to look at the Gamblegram, which I'm going to put in the show notes, it shows that the most abundant cation is sodium and the most abundant anion is chloride. If you were to subtract your sodium from your chloride, a normal sodium, serum sodium, is going to be 140 and a normal chloride of, we'll say, 102, that would give you a difference of 38. Now, we know that there has to be an equal amount of positive and negative charges. So that 38 on the anion side is made up of things like bicarbonate, uh, lactate, albumin. All of those things make up that gap, and that is called your anion gap. So when somebody has an elevated anion gap, what that means is that one of those placeholders that make up that 38 is growing out of proportion or has been added to the body. And that's where the acronym GOLDMARK comes in. It's replaced uh, mud piles. Uh, Things like uh, your ethylene, propylene, glycol, oxyproline, lactate, uh, methanol, aspirin, ketoacidosis, all of these things will make up that anion gap or it can be completely indigenous. So somebody gets an accumulation of lactic acid, their lactate is going to start increasing. And that little spot is going to grow and it's going to have to be compensated by a decrease in chloride so that way you can maintain that electrical neutrality. I kind of think of this like the Monroe Kelly doctrine where there's only so much space in your skull for your brain, your blood, your spinal fluid. And if one increases, the other one is going to suffer. And so, if your brain swells, you're going to reduce the amount of cerebral spinal fluid, or your perfusion is going to be cut down. It's the same way with the anion gap and on the anion side of the gamblegram. As you increase your lactate, or as you increase your ketones, Your body is going to shift chloride, and it's also going to start to shift your bicarbonate levels. And you're going to start to see your bicarb drop. Now, it's not because you don't have enough bicarb, but it's because you are taking up space within the anion bracket with lactate. And so instead of giving somebody bicarb, it would make more sense to try to reverse the cause of that lactic acidosis because once you shrink that back down, the kidneys are going to respond appropriate as long as they don't have uh, something like renal failure. Now, if you look at the bicarb ICU trial, you're going to see that they gave bicarbonate to patients with an anion gap acidosis. Uh, But these were patients with renal failure, and they found that uh, this bicarb actually decreased the incidence of them needing dialysis. So there may be some potential use for it, in a patient with renal failure, but not in the patient that is perfectly capable of creating their own bicarbonate. So just think it is a placeholder issue and not an issue of not being able to create indigenous bicarb. When it comes to how to replenish the bicarb if it's needed, uh, Josh Farkas did a phenomenal post on this and I have to agree, I think it makes a lot of sense to uh, take a 50 ml bag of D5W and put your Ampa bicarb in that and that's going to give you a 4.2 concentration as opposed to the 8.4 and and then you're just going to let that drip in. and What that's going to do is allow the respiratory rate to compensate as that is being infused and that way uh, you do not have a patient that's generating a ton of co2 and not able to blow it off now typically our patients have already had a a plethora of fluid before we even arrive Um, but if they haven't and volume resuscitation is still needed uh, then it makes sense to mix up some isotonic bicarb and you're going to do this by taking a liter bag of d5w and adding three amps Of sodium bicarbonate to it and what that's going to do is give you the benefit of the sodium uh, without the detriment of the chloride because if we increase the chloride by giving sodium chloride which has 154 milliequivalents of chloride in it uh, that's going to elevate the chloride above what the endogenous chloride level is and as we increase the chloride then we know we have to maintain neutrality so what's going to end up happening is the body is going to release hydrogen ions from the cation side, to increase the bracket to make up for that increase in chloride. And we don't want that. That's called a hyperchloremic acidosis. This is very common. Uh, When you go to pick up somebody from the ED, look at their chloride. If it's above 102, you start seeing chlorides around 110, 112. That is from, usually, sodium chloride. And that's something that's iatrogenic and can make the patient more acidotic. Now, I'm going to admit that my thought process on giving sodium bicarbonate during cardiac arrest has shifted quite a bit. Uh, I used to only give it if I thought they uh, possibly overdosed on a TCA or they could possibly be hyperkalemic. Uh, But now I think as long as you're providing adequate ventilations, uh, the patient probably would benefit from that. And anecdotally, I've seen this occur where I throw the ultrasound probe on uh, during cardiac arrest And when they do their rhythm check, I look and I see the heart kind of beating with poor contractility. You give them a amp of bicarb or some uh, calcium chloride, and then you see that heart increase in its strength. And so I think that as long as you have an airway and you are providing appropriate ventilation, I honestly don't see any harm in throwing sodium bicarb in after a few rounds of ACLS. Because in my mind, this patient is equivalent to the patient that is in renal failure. So even if they do have a lactic acidosis, uh, they're not going to be making their own endogenous bicarb in a low flow state. And I do not see any problem with replenishing that. Alright, so I know you guys probably have a ton of comments on this, and this is a very uh, controversial topic, and I look forward to hearing what you do in your practice, what makes sense in your brain, and how do you determine when to give bicarbonate. All right, a few last housekeeping items. Um, If you have not gone on and rated the show on iTunes, uh, we would really appreciate it. It helps us uh, move to the top of the list so more people can see the podcast. And it's just nice knowing that there's people out there uh, that are listening. I was just at the Alabama EMS Conference and the Oregon EMS Conference, and I was astounded by how many people came up and knew me from the Foam Frat Podcast. It was extremely humbling, and it was just so cool. It's inspiring to go back and record more content knowing that there's people all over the world that are listening and are giving me feedback and sam and cynthia and i uh, really appreciate that and we hope that you guys have gone on and subscribed to the website if you haven't uh, just go to foamfrat.com throw in your email address and you will get notified right away whenever we put up new content all right you guys enjoy your fall stay warm stay safe and we'll talk to you soon